0: Um, If I haven't met you guys, I'm Drew. I'm Jim's son. Um, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me up here. This is an incredibly fun church to preach at, and I love you guys. Um, Today, I would love to talk about a story that some of you have probably heard a million times. Some of you maybe haven't heard it yet. It's sometimes called the Gospel of the Gospels. Um, Before I give you anything else, I'm just going to read it. And so, as I'm reading this story, let it Sink in, pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is kind of bubbling out for you, um, or what hooks you maybe, what stays with you. And this is Luke chapter 15, starting at 11. Then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he, dis- he divided his assets between them. After a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and worked for one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to eat the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have enough food to spare, but here I am dying from hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. Then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Hurry, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the slaves and asked what was happening. The slave replied, Your brother has returned, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I love that story. So a little trivia first. Um, does anybody know what that parable is called? Prodigal son. prodigal son. Your translation might call it something else, but I think that's the most common name for it. Uh, bonus round. Does anybody know what the word prodigal means? I didn't. I had to look it up. I don't use it in my regular vocabulary. Wow. All right, well, that blows my joke out of the water. But yeah, it does mean it means you're, uh, you're reckless with your money. It means you're wasteful. Uh, I had no idea. That seems like such a strange thing to call this parable, to name it after the wastefulness of the younger son. It doesn't quite fit for me. Um, we'll get back to that a little bit later. So this is a parable. Jesus is telling this parable in Luke. Luke gives us actually a, a few parables in this section. He groups three of these parables in Luke 15... And he puts them all into this this context at the very beginning of the chapter. It says, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him, Jesus, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so these Pharisees are um, a group of uh, Jewish uh, clergymen who are very fluent in the law. They know all the things you can do, all the things you can't do. And they pride themselves on following it. And it's very important to follow this, according to them. And so they're watching Jesus hanging out with the people who are doing everything wrong, and they've got a problem. So I read the third parable. Um, The first two are pretty quick, and I'll summarize them pretty quickly here, but they all kind of fit under that lens. So the very first one is the parable of the lost sheep, or the 99 sheep. Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who... He has a flock of 100 sheep, but one of them is lost. So he leaves the 99 in the flock, and he goes and he finds the one lost sheep. This makes sense. Um, people of that time, I think, would, they would hear that, and they would understand. That's, that's what happens in real life. You can leave a giant group of uh, sheep like that, and they're safe from predators, because there's safety in the flock. And the shepherd is responsible for the one lost sheep. And so, absolutely, he would go hike around. He would try to find him. He, would, he wants to see what happened. And if you lived in a village where, you know, maybe as the sun is going down, you see the shepherd coming back, walking down the hills with a sheep on his shoulder, like, you would celebrate. That's wonderful, right? So then the second parable follows the same kind of pattern. Uh, a woman loses a coin, and she searches for it, and she finds it. It's a, very, it's a very valuable coin, maybe part of her dowry. And I would do that, too. If I lost money, I would try to find it. Um, if it was a lot of money, yeah, I might celebrate with my friends. Makes sense, right? So... Uh, these parables, the first two, the question that Jesus is asking, that Luke gives us, is what if you lost something good, and then you found it, and you'd celebrate? And then the second one with the coin, what if you lost something good, and you found it, and you'd celebrate? And then in the third one, I think, Jesus has lulled the audience into the pattern, and he says, now what if you lost someone bad? And I think the audience stops and goes, what? <laughs> kind of like you just did. And so Luke has thrown us for a trip. He's, he's built this pattern. And he's going somewhere, and he surprises us. Um, He surprises us at the very beginning of the parable too. So one of the first things he says, we don't even really think about normally. Because in our Western mindset, when the younger son says, give me my share of the estate, maybe we hear that like, uh, hey dad, pay for my college loans, I wanna go get a degree. Or, you know, loan me some money so I can go start my own business. You know, we think of it maybe in an entrepreneurial sense. This is an inheritance that he's asking for. That's a little bit different. Um, You get an inheritance when someone dies. And so the very first line of this parable, the younger son says to the father, I wish you were dead. Give me what I'm owed. Everyone in the audience that's listening to Jesus now has their attention on him, right? They're like, wait, what? This doesn't happen. This is very rare and unheard of in their time. The stranger thing after that is that the father complies. He gives the money to the son. That's strange. He doesn't have to. He could have reprimanded him. It could have gone a million ways. So we know a lot about the younger son. He's arrogant. He's self-righteous. He thinks he knows what to do. And we know that the father is generous. He's willing to give the son a chance like this. So as the parable continues, it says the son squanders all of his wealth, right, on his wild lifestyle. So this makes it really clear In the first two parables, it's not the fault of the sheep or the coin that they're lost. A coin can't lose itself. Sheep are unfortunately not very smart animals. They wander off all the time. It's kind of a mean thing that God calls us his sheep, actually, but unimportant. And so it makes it very clear that the younger son, he's at fault. He's made bad choices. And it's his fault that he's out of money now, right? So maybe at this point the Pharisees in the audience are thinking, oh, yeah, he messed up. And so now to get back in good graces with the father, you know, he's gonna have to earn his way back. But the story doesn't stop there. He doesn't just waste his money. He's in a foreign country and a famine strikes. And so imagine a crisis like this. Some of you may have lived through this at the beginning of COVID, when everything locked down, we couldn't shop, We couldn't go to most of our jobs, we couldn't fly, you couldn't leave. Imagine if you had just moved to a different country, you have no friends, you have no family, and you're fresh out of money. That is terrifying for us. Let alone 2,000 years ago, such a familial culture, you didn't move away from your family like we do. You lived with your family. You picked up the same trade that your dad did, and you inherit the land that he had. And to be so far away and so foreign, you can tell this guy's in a bad way. And then it gets worse. He's working for Uh, probably a Gentile, because it says the citizen owns pigs. Pigs are unclean. So for a Jew to even be around a pig is bad news. For a Jew to feed a pig, you're, you're serving this unclean animal. That is as low as it could be. All he wants to eat is the food that they feed the pigs, which is basically like dog food. And nobody will even give him that. So Jesus makes it clear this is as bad, as rock bottom as it could be for a Jew. And so at this point, the audience is probably just silent, thinking, where are you going with this? Like, what story is this? And so then in verse 17, he comes to his senses, and he thinks, you know, my dad would probably take better care of me, and even his servants probably have a better place than I do right now, feeding pigs, and I miss my family. And so he begins to turn back to his dad and he voices, he kind of practices his repentance and he says, you know what, I'm going to tell him I've sinned against him, I've sinned against heaven and I don't even deserve my title as son. I'm not his son anymore, I gave that up because I told him I wished he was dead and now I'm dead to him. And so then he heads back to his father and it says in 20, while he was still a long way from home, his father saw him and his heart went out to him. He ran and hugged his son and kissed him. So, the father was watching for the son. He's just scanning the horizon. He's just hoping. But it's more than that because his son was dead to him. Not just in the way that, I mean, his son cut ties. But imagine, I mean, you don't have Facebook, you don't have email, you don't know what's happening with your family if they move somewhere else. And the son wasn't traveling, the son was leaving to go set up shop somewhere else. And so, when he left, the father probably thought, I'm never going to see you again. This is the end. Yet, he's still watching the horizon. He's just hoping. And so when he runs out to meet him, the surprise, I imagine, in the audience, for a father to run, this is strange. We don't really think about this now, but especially in these days, a father is the head of the household. It's very patriarchal. So he holds the whole weight of the pride of the family you know, on his shoulders. He can't disrespect himself. He can't dishonor himself, uh, especially to somebody who's like, lower than him, like a son, let alone a younger son, who has completely cut ties with the family, you don't dishonor yourself for someone like that, absolutely not, you wait for them to come to you. But he doesn't, he sprints out, catches his son in his arms, makes an absolute fool of himself on the way. And so now the audience listening to Jesus is surely like, who who does this, whose father is this? Like, I've never seen this before, you know, where does this happen? So the son begins repenting. And he says, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy. And the father cuts him off, and he tells the servants, get him a ring, get him sandals, get him a robe, we're gonna have a feast. He doesn't even get through the full repentance, and God is so happy, well, the father at that point, is so happy to have him back that he's willing to throw a feast, he's gonna party, he says, let's get everybody at the table, this is great, right? And they celebrate. And so that's the end of the story, right? Everyone's happy. And then I imagine... In the audience, everyone's like, well, it's kind of a weird story, but okay, that's that's a cool father. I like that. And then, I think Jesus probably turns his gaze to the Pharisees, and he continues. And he says, now the older son was in the field. So he explains that the older son has been working in the field. He's been out, who knows how long, all day, working hard. He doesn't even know What's going on? He hears that there's a party going on. He goes, what's going on? The slave says, well, your brother's back. Your brother's alive. You know, we thought he was dead, but he's home, he's safe, and he's sound. And the older brother gets mad. I think at this point, the Pharisees might kind of get the hairs in the back of their neck standing up a little bit because they know where Jesus is going with this, potentially. And so the older son doesn't want to go in. He doesn't join the party. He doesn't join in community. He stands outside, probably with his arms folded, just waiting, and his father comes out. The same way that the father goes out to the younger son. He doesn't have to go out to his older son. He doesn't have to explain anything to him. He's the patriarch. But he does. And he greets him with grace. And he explains to him. And the older son is still, he's just mad. He says, I've been been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your commands. Boy, that sure sounds like a Pharisee. Your command, your law. I have held up every single thing you told me to do. You know, I have made every offering. I have, I have lived a perfect life. But you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. A goat's cheaper than a fattened calf. We get the sense that the father probably would have given him an entire feast if the son had said, hey, I want to throw a party. The father would have been like, great. But the son doesn't look for relationship with the father. He doesn't say, I want to feast with you. He's mad that he doesn't get a goat to hang out with his friends. It's, you can see a difference here. And then, more than that, he makes up part of the story about the son, uh, the younger son. He says, "You know, he wasted his money on prostitutes." How would he know that? He hasn't even talked. He just learned that the younger son showed up. He has no idea. So he's just slandering him. He's mad. He feels entitled. He feels he's worked so hard. He's done a better job. Why hasn't he been blessed like this? Why does the, why does the younger son? get this kind of grace. And I think this is very reminiscent of how some of the Pharisees in that time felt. You know, they, uh, they were God's people and they had followed the law to the letter. They had done the things they were supposed to do. They had not done those things we're not supposed to do. That whole list of stuff that sinners do and tax collectors, we don't do that. You know, we've been, we've been following your rules. Why would you let them in all of a sudden? That's ridiculous. But the father says, son, you are always with me. Everything that belongs to me is yours. And the father gets the last word in the parable. And I love that because I think that's important. I love the tension. We don't get to know how the story ends. The last image we get is the older son talking to the father outside the party. And the father is inviting him in. He's asking him, come on, come join us. Come join in the feast. Come sit at the table with us. And we don't know, maybe the older son... Decides he can't let go of his anger. And he says, Give me my inheritance, and I'm going to go out now. Maybe he says, You're right. I'm happy he's home. And he goes in and he joins. Maybe, you know, we have no idea. But it leaves us thinking. And I imagine Jesus probably then, looking at the Pharisees and the crowd, is thinking, So what are you going to do? Are you going to come in? Are you going to join in? Because the table's bigger than you thought, and we have more room. That's what Jesus was opening up the the offer to his people, right? He was expanding the borders on who was allowed at the table, on who could come into God's house. And that was so difficult for them to hear because what they knew about God just didn't fit with that. They didn't know, they didn't have room for the creativity of God's graciousness and God's generosity. And so at the end of this parable, we have multiple viewpoints we can look at. It's the fun part about parables is they give us, different characters that we can, we can listen to or we you know, might reflect on, we might identify with. But there's no one moral of a parable. It's not, it doesn't end with a, and so you should go to bed on time or something like that. Um, and so when we look at these different characters, maybe some of them feel familiar to you. Have you been the older son? Maybe invited in and you, you're standing there with your arms crossed because you've worked for what you've done. You don't understand why somebody else could receive this grace, you know, so cheaply, so freely. Um, Maybe you've been the younger son. You've been arrogant. You've wasted all of the wealth that was given to you. Or you've been humbled. Or you've been welcomed by somebody who has the ability to bless you, welcome you back in. Maybe you felt what that graciousness feels like. Maybe you've been the father before, where you are blessed enough that you can extend your grace in this way that nobody else can. You can surprise people by making a fool out of yourself for their sake. We can also look at this at a a different angle. We can look at the relationship between Israel and God. And so I think that might be what the Pharisees are kind of hearing in this, because Jesus is talking about some pretty big stuff here. And the Pharisees are kind of like pastors. They've studied the scriptures, and they're used to giving sermons, and they're like, I know where you're going, Jesus. I get the metaphor here. So maybe he's calling to mind for them, you know, when the, husband, the uh, father is searching, uh, Isaiah 41 is a prayer that I read often. 41.9 says, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah is talking to Israel, um, giving them the words that God gave him. And so this is all of Israel. God is he seeks them out. He goes to the, the furthest corner of the earth, and he says, I didn't pick you because you were strong, I picked you because you were weak, right? And this is what the father does. He's just scanning the horizon, and as soon as he sees his son turn around, he goes out to him. And I think this is what God does with Israel, and even more than that, I think this is what God does with humanity. Um, We can look at this at a a really grand scale. The younger son tells God he wishes, tells the father he wishes he was dead. That's often what we do when we try to do things ourselves. We say, "No, I don't need you. I know how to do this better." And so God lets us. And he lets us go off. He gives us what we demand. Tearfully. I think with a lot of sadness in his heart. I mean, he's probably weeping as he watches us go. And he's hoping that we turn back to him. And when we do turn back to him... It is so surprising how fast that repentance works, how quickly he is to accept us back in. We sometimes make these walls that we have to get over, these things we have to do, like the Pharisees are probably doing, you know, this code we have to follow, we've got to get everything in order first. And that's just not the case. The father interrupts the younger son in the middle of his repentance, and he's like, yeah, 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 you're back, come on. Like, and it's a wonderful image of God, I think. It reflects in Ezekiel, um, God says, I, do, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their ways and live. God does not enjoy punishing people, I don't think, especially in this case, there is no debt to be paid. There is no punishment. God didn't, the father doesn't cause this famine or something for the son. Instead, he is just so happy when the son is back and the repentance is so much easier than the son thought that it would be. So we see this view of humanity and God, and then God poses, well, Jesus poses as he explains this, you know, which side are you on? Are you, maybe are you you the younger son? Have you, have you been lost? Have you gone far away and you've convinced yourself maybe you're too far? Or are you the older son saying, I've been working, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. The beautiful part is that both of them are invited into the feast. Both of them, the father goes out to and appeals to them and says, Come on, come join us. And so, if you identify with certain parts of this, great, wonderful. That's an invitation. All the characters are, are invited into the feast and into the party. I think uh, William Barclay worded this best. He summed up all three of these parables. And he said, the love of God can defeat human folly, the seduction of the tempting voices, and even the deliberate rebellion of the heart. And so now I want to return to what do we call this parable? It is such a disservice to call it the prodigal son, the wasteful son. That is not what the parable is about. That's a part of it. That happens in like the first two sentences. Your translations might call it the lost son. That fits a little better. Uh, Some say the son that was found. That's even a little better. We're getting closer. Mine says the compassionate father. I think that is the gold heart of this. That the father is compassionate. His love and his grace is surprising. It makes no sense. It turns him into a fool for the world because that is what leads him. That's what pulls him to his children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father... Thank you so much for who you are and what you do for us. Thank you that you make a fool of yourself for us. Thank you that you are the the kind of God who is led by your heart. You're led by the grace and the love that you have. And that you surprise us with your creativity. You surprise us with how close you are. You watch for us just hoping that we'll turn back to you. And you accept us so quickly back when we do. So we thank you that you're the type of God that we know we can always turn to. We can lean on, we can depend on. And I pray that we would move forward this week knowing that we would lean on you in that way knowing that you are so close. So we ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.